0: Thank you so much for the welcome. I'm pleased that Arsenal managed to win today. She's not listening. I'm pleased Arsenal managed to win today for once. (laughs) I wonder, uh, this is a very pertinent question for me to ask at the moment. How do you cope with stress? How do, do you, who copes with stress well? Hands up if you cope with stress well. Hands up if your partner deals with stress terribly. <laughs> Teresa, is your hand up? You're not, wow. You know, I'm so pleased this year that we're here at Minehead. Last year we were up at Skegness, And I have to say that we had the most appalling journey to Skegness you could possibly, well, oh, no, 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 I, I tell a lie. We had the most fantastic journey most of the way to Skegness. And then suddenly, whoa. And then suddenly, just as we arrived on the outskirts of Skegness, we met the most horrendous traffic jam. Now, the thing I'd like to know is, why do we meet a traffic jam in Skegness? Have you ever been to Skegness? I mean, we're not talking the M5, are we? You know? We've had a traffic jam in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of this field. There's suddenly hundreds of cars all over the place. And and we're late. And I've got a meeting in about five minutes, and we've no petrol. And at that point, Sam, in the back seat, Dad, I need the toilet. (laughs) No, Sam, you don't need the toilet. Hold it in. No, 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 Dad, I really need the toilet. I've been holding it in a long time. No, no, Sam, what do you want me to do? You know, we're in the middle of this toilet. We're gonna... And I can't tell the... There's nowhere to go. Sam, Samuel... Dad, I need the toilet. And Sam ended up running out into down some lane. And then we kind of moved. Oh, no, no. It's absolute terrible. And I'm sat there in this car and thinking, oh, my goodness. You know, I'm about to go into spring harvest and do some teaching. And here I am, completely and utterly stressed out. I have to say that it's not an uncommon experience. My family are scarred by my stress outs. I said the other day that Le Paz Octon is the best place in the world to go on a holiday. Yeah? Are you, are you convinced yet? Last year we went there and uh, we, we, we decided to stop off in Brittany on the way. And uh, we caught the ferry from Roscoff to Plymouth late uh, one afternoon and arrived in Roscoff about 9.30 at night. Now, we decided, because we we're skinflints, uh, to leave the petrol as empty as possible, because it's really cheap in France. <laughs> You're ahead of me, aren't you? <laughs> Do you know, there isn't a petrol station open in France after 9.30 on a Sunday night. We looked, we thought, oh well, we'll, we'll just drive out to Roscoff and one of those hyper or something, there's bound to be one. No, no, no petrol station at all. Then we kind of drove through. We dro- kind of drove out to Roscoff and started going through one or two of the towns to try and see if there was one. And we saw the sign for Hyper U, twenty-four hour cabaret, whatever it is. And so we thought, oh, this is it. Drove down there. It wouldn't take the visa card. So we now kind of got a sliver of petrol on the car. And we've got to drive about 100 Ks or whatever it is, down across Brittany, down to Lorient, and uh, the place we're staying in, Gavreau. And uh, I tell you, that was good for our prayer life. <laughs> crossing France, crossing this barren bar of France, with no petrol, in the middle of the night. I was a little stressed. And we got to Lorient, this city, you know, a city, a good-sized city no petrol stations opened so we thought okay we've got here so far let's, let's just carry on praying we'll get to gafferum lo and behold we got to this little village where we were staying and stopped parked the car oh thank you lord you got us here on air god's so wonderful isn't he got out of the car we hired this little cottage this little fisherman's cottage and we've been told that the key would be under the barbecue What we weren't told was, at 1.30 in the morning when we would arrive, that the barbecue were behind a seven-foot fence and the gate would be locked. So we're now in the middle of nowhere with no petrol in the car, thinking, well, that's okay. We'll be able to kind of uh, drive back to Lorient perhaps and you know, you have got the seven-foot high fence, what are we gonna do? I suggested chucking one of the boys over. <laughs> Teresa, who's always calm for some reason, I don't know how. Teresa decided this probably wasn't a good idea because if the key wasn't there, how were they gonna get back? I said, tough, it'll be quieter. <laughs> so now, kind of, you know, what are we gonna do? So I tried to phone the owner of the house. And uh, of course, we hired it over the internet uh, from a French couple. And if you know my French, it's not really very good to use it uh, when you're stressed out at 1.30 in the morning. Plus, who's going to pick up their phone at 1.30 in the morning and hear this mad Englishman on the other end telling them their gates locked, tough, you know? And uh, in the end, I summoned up the courage and I climbed up this fence, okay? Praying like mad that the whole thing didn't collapse because I'm not the most slender of figures. So can you imagine this, you know? We're on this back street in this little village in France with me climbing a seven-foot-high fence, my kids dying of embarrassment all over the place, Theresa praying that the police don't arrive. We got in. We found the key. We had a wonderful holiday. It was great. But I don't tend to deal with stress very well. Therefore, I was really, really pleased to find a film where somebody else has the same kind of problem. Bruce? Smite me, O oh mighty smiter. It's a wonderful one, isn't it? Psalm 42. I don't know whether you've got your Bibles on you, you want to kind of look at Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. I want to look at a, a number of parts of it tonight. It's a fantastic psalm. It's a psalm which talks about somebody's personal experience, somebody's actual experience of what it's like to try and follow God in adversity. This writer, we think, is actually cut off cut off from Jerusalem. The, the main suggestion is that he's up north somewhere and there are barriers between him and Jerusalem to get back to temple worship. Uh, the, nor- the northern kingdom and physical barriers, and so on. He can get back there. And in his isolation, he feels absolutely desperate for God. The only question that is on his mind is, where is your God? So somebody in the Psalms, again, as we found on a number of other occasions, who isn't jumping up and down and saying, whoopee, everything's hunky-dory. Somebody who's actually saying, speaking from their heart and saying, I just cannot cope. I don't know where God is. I, I can't say where he is. I can't get there. I'm just, I, I'm just in complete desolation, despair about what's going on. And yet, this is somebody who hasn't always been there. He talks next about remembering the good times. He remembers worship in the temple. He remembers leading the procession in the temple. He remembers the shouts of joy, the sh- thanksgiving he gave. And yet, then suddenly in verse six, he goes back into despair again. One minute this guy's on a high; the next minute, on he's on a real spiritual roller coaster here as he kind of pl- maps out his spiritual life. From verse 6 onwards, the image of drought that we had in the first few verses now changes to an image of the flood. Now there's not, it's not as though there's not enough water now. There's too much water. There's floods and deeps and waters and cataracts and everything. And yet, even in this abundance, there is no sense of God's presence for him. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Well, I'd be pretty downcast as well if I couldn't sense God's presence, wouldn't you? I'm not too sure if I'd be too bothered about not being able to get to church that often sometimes, but would you? A Sunday off isn't too bad, is it? Oh, go on, is it? Oh, of course, yes, sorry, spring harvest. Um... But again, that chorus doesn't just sound a note of despair. There is another note coming in here again of hope. Why so downcast, O oh my soul, put your hope in God? For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And if you go through into Psalm 43, which is probably part of the same psalm originally, We go through to a note of vindication, another note of kind of um, belligerence, really, on the part of this psalm writer. A time when he's actually going to work it out, he's going to vindicate me, Lord, punish everybody, let's get on with it. And then again onto the refrain, why so downcast, O my soul? There's a sense in this psalm of a kind of movement of emotional moods. I see a changing of moods, a changing of seasons of the soul. Sometimes despair, sometimes joy, sometimes hope, sometimes prayer. And I just want to say first of all tonight, that I want to acknowledge the fact that there are seasons of the soul. Seasons of where our spiritual life is. And you know, those seasons could be almost like the the seasons of the the year. Summer is full of joy and growth and abundance. Autumn full of fruit and happiness and abundance. Winter full of the cold, dark despair. Spring, perhaps, are the signs of hope. Or link it to what we're going through the liturgical calendar at the moment. You know, the season of Good Friday. When your soul is full of desolation and the fact that God's died for you, that Jesus died for you upon the cross. The sense of hopelessness that the disciples must have felt. The feeling of guilt that they had abandoned their Savior. Or the season of Easter Saturday. Now what? Where's God? What do I do now? Or the season of Easter Sunday. Joy, hallelujah, like we were worshipping a minute ago. Lift up His name with a sign of singing. Like we were it last night wasn't last night fantastic. It was a, such a privilege to stand there and see you all jumping up and down and praising and dancing. Some of the worship that's gone on which is absolutely incredible. Season of Easter Sunday or a season of Pentecost when you're so full of the power of the Holy Spirit. But let's 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 get something clear here. The Psalm does not say. A good person who is following God will always be in the season of Easter Sunday or in the season of Pentecost. Have you picked up what I'm trying to say? This psalmist knows the season of Easter Saturday. This psalmist knows the season of desolation and despair. And he says... It's a real experience for me. And it's okay. We don't go through our Bible and start saying, right, let's cut out of the word all those people who know of the season of despair because they can't be good examples for Christians. Bye-bye, Jeremiah. Bye-bye, Isaiah. Bye-bye, David, certainly. Uh, Bye-bye, Jesus. Gethsemane the cross you can't do that can you you can't start exercising all those kind of people out of the text because they have this sense of a season of desolation well then why do we rack ourselves with guilt and and other te- feelings of rejection and everything when we are in that season it's okay if you are going through a season of winter in your spiritual life it's okay if you're going through a season of spring or summer or autumn. If you're a Good Friday or Easter Saturday or Easter Sunday or Pentecost, it's okay. But what this psalm says is those are okay, but actually, the most health, healthy life is to allow the seasons to roll to move from winter to spring, to move from spring to summer, to move from summer to autumn, to move from autumn to winter. Imagine what it'd be like always being in summer. Everything would be arid and dry. Well, not in Britain, I know, but let's go back to France. What would it be like always to be in winter? Again, back to Britain, yeah, okay. Um, did you get what I mean? You just couldn't hack being in one season all the time. And just so in our spiritual lives, we do need to move on. And I think actually this psalm gives us two clues about how we can move on. How we can get away from being stuck in one particular season. The first way is through companionship. Through friendship. Look at what he says. These things I remember, in verse 4. As I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, how I led the procession in the temple. He harks back to when he had friends, when he could go to worship and have great time and fun and celebration. He remembers spring harvest and looks forward to the next time he's going to be there. Going to be back in 2007? I hope so. Let's make an appointment be good. We need to have companions on our way. We need to have people who can jog our memory, people who can remind us of what it was like when our memories go, when we cannot anymore make sense of what is going on around us. We need somebody there beside us to say, yeah, it's all right. God was with you yesterday. God is with you today. God will be with you tomorrow. Think of that man at the pool of Bethsaida or Bethsaida in John chapter 5. 38 years. 38 years he is stuck at the side of the pool. And no one has been there to help him. Nobody. He has nobody to help him. What happens? 38 years without healing. 38 years of loneliness when nobody will help him out. And Jesus has to come along and break him out of that and says to him, Do you want to be healed? Yes, the man says. Why well, doesn't he even say that, does he? Do you want to be healed? Then pick up your mat and walk. But that man's loneliness, well think of another one, the one you've all done with uh, Stephen Gaquardi earlier this week, Mark 2, where the man is brought the leper on the mat, remember? And his friends dig away the hole and lower him down. There, this man had friends. This man had people who would actually look after him and share in his healing process. This man had somebody who would take him to the Lord. Guys, we need somebody who will take us to the Lord. Who have you got that will take you to the Lord? Is there somebody, is there somebody who without asking will take you to Jesus and say, you know, I mean, Steve, you know. Is there somebody that Steve's got who will take him to the Lord? He needs it, doesn't he? Wearing a shirt like that, he says. Um, we need people who without us even asking will take us to the Lord and ask for our healing. We need people to whom we can be accountable for our Christian faith, somebody who will have the guts to say to us, Pete, how's your Bible reading going? Pete, how's your prayer life going? Pete, how are you doing about friendships? Pete, how are you doing about church nowadays? Pete, what are the things in your life that you really shouldn't be getting up to? Pete, how's your spending going? Is it holy? Is it righteous? Is it just? Pete, who are you? Do you have somebody that will do that? What I'm saying here is this psalm says, if you want to progress through the seasons of the soul and not get stuck, you need somebody to give you a kick up the back, sorry, um, to give you a nudge when you can't do it. Somebody can actually take you to Jesus and say, Lord, Pete really needs to move out of the season of despair. Move him on, Lord. Will you do that? Remember a good Easter Day, uh, sorry, Good Friday. Remember that Jesus had time to look down from the cross, and in that moment of agony, and He says, "Mary, behold your son. John, behold your mother." You have to have somebody to help you cope with the despair that sometimes will come upon you. I think the worst thing in the world for desolation is facing it on your own, when there is nobody there with you. Well, um, it's easy to say all this, isn't it? If you want to look at more desolation, go to Ecclesiastes 4, which talks about all of uh, the the joys of friendship. But you know, there's some platitudes in this, isn't there? Because it's easy for me up here on the Spring Harvest days to say, you need a friend. But what if you haven't got any? What if you don't find it easy to make a friend? What happens if you've got loads, you know, you've got loads of acquaintances and people around you, but there's just nobody with whom you can connect? When you've gone to somebody and said, will you, will you pray for me? Yes, 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 of course I will. You want a cup of tea? What happens if nobody will do that? What happens if you can enter into that accountability partnership with somebody? Well, I'm, I don't know. I can say to you that Jesus will be there for you, like the man at the pool of Bethesda who had nobody for 38 years; he still had Jesus. Jesus was still come. But you know. Uh, Even as I say that, everything kind of screams like, yes, that's right, that's a good evangelical thing to say, but sometimes you need some skin on, don't you? You need somebody who can actually come along and say, you know, what happens if you feel so desolate you can't find Jesus anywhere? Where is my God? It's okay, Jesus is with you. Yeah, but where? I don't know. Try it. Try it try and build those friendships up. And perhaps if it doesn't work, perhaps next year when you come back to Spring Harvest, we can run a program on friendships. Perhaps you can run a program on developing accountability relationships. Perhaps you can run a seminar on how we can actually develop those. You can come and share your story. And I'll share my story or somebody else who's here will share their story about how they do it and how they mess it up as well. I'm not suggesting you're going to mess it up. I'm just saying, if it was me, I'll probably mess it up. The other thing I want to say about companions is be careful who they are. Really be careful who they are. Look at the people you've come with. Be careful of your companions. I went, I went to a service recently, you know. And this guy, this guy said... If you want to soar with eagles, stop walking around with your turkeys. (laughs) Look at the person you've come with, are they a turkey? Look at the people I've been working with all week. Eagles everyone. No, 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 hold on. Hold on, you laugh. I was horrified. I was absolutely horrified. This guy had the affront in a church service to say that it's about time that if we want to be holy people, we should actually mix only with holy people. We should only mix with really good people, and we should try and make sure they're wealthy. (laughs) They should fly first class on aeroplanes. They should drive a new car. They should be able to invite you out for a meal after the service. That's what he meant. He meant don't associate with the poor. Don't associate with the have-nots. Don't associate with the disholy or unholy. Don't associate with the rabble, the turkeys of this world. Oh, I was horrified. Can I tell you something else? If you want to soar with eagle, like eagles, spend time with the sparrows, with the starlings, with the wrens. Not the Reds, you know. Anyway. <laughs> Spend time with them, they need Jesus as well. Why do I say that? Because because look at what Jesus did. Jesus spent time with the blind, the sick, the halt, the lame. Jesus spent time with the poor people in Galilee. He, yes, he did hobnob with the rich, but they were usually the rich who were dispossessed, the rich who were cast out of their society. He didn't hobnob with the social climbers. He didn't hobnob with the yuppies. Be careful. Be careful who you spend time with. But please don't, whatever you do, try to soar the eagles by despising those who are dispossessed and poor. That's where you'll find God. That's where you'll find Jesus with the dispossessed, the poor, the halt, and the lame. You know, it's been an inspiration to watch people here who sit at the front every day as they worship God. It's been an inspiration to see people who are able to be liberated in their disabilities. It's fantastic last night to see people waving their flags and Crying out in praise to God. Dancing here at the front. That's been an inspiration. That's been my highlight. I've got so much to learn from this worship. Choose your companions well. Second point that the psalmist makes about how to allow these seasons to roll is that he says this in the chorus, put your hope in God for I will yet praise my savior and my God. Are you feeling generous? I know that Dotha has already pushed your patience to the limit by mentioning my weakness for supporting a, a certain premiership football team. The only reason I support them is so I can pray that they will change their label from Red Devils to Red Angels. That's the only reason I support them. Honest. It's Christian grace that I do it. Honest. For no other reason, apart from they're the best team. Um, Perhaps we'd be gracious one little bit more, and that's allow me to do a bit of Hebrew. Because one of the phrases in this sentence that it means. The salvations of his face. The word we translate my savior in Hebrew means the salvations of my face, which doesn't quite make sense, does it? And so you translate it my savior. But the actual Hebrew is Yeshua Panav. Yeshua Panav. Do you hear the name? Yeshua, the name of Jesus there in that phrase. Yeshua, the Hebrew name for Jesus. I will praise Yeshua Panav. I will praise the salvation in the face of Jesus. Sorry, Dothu's Old Testament, and I've just kind of... uh, That's a huge paraphrase of of it. If you want me not to paraphrase, let's go to the New Testament, which I understand a lot better and makes the language a lot easier. Hebrews 12.2 says exactly the same thing. If you want to keep the perseverance of your soul, if you want to allow the seasons to roll, then what does Hebrews twelve two say? Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Simple, isn't it? Dead easy. Find the right friends, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Get somebody to nudge you and fix your eyes upon Jesus. Have somebody there who can can hold you accountable and fix your eyes upon Jesus. This is not rocket science, is it? Haven't you heard this loads of times before? (coughs) Haven't you? Get some friends and fix your eyes upon Jesus. Well, how? Well, first of all, by knowing Jesus. By having a relationship with him. Not some kind of counterfeit relationship, which means coming spring harvest. Or going to church. I spent ages going to the Christian Union at school, pretending that I knew God, pretending that I was actually one of the people who was in the know, who knew Jesus. And I was one of the leaders in the Christian Union. And uh, you know, I kind of, you know, I've got a big mouth. You may have noticed. And you know, I thought I'd conned everybody that I was there. And it was one house party when we were away, when we were in a room, and everyone was recommitting their lives to Jesus. And suddenly, I thought, you know. All this time, I've been kidding everybody. I don't know who this Jesus is. When it came around to me, I said, Lord, I want you to be in my life. I give my life to you. The horrific thing was, everybody came up to me afterwards and said, Hallelujah, you've become a Christian at last. <laughs> last night of spring harvest, Don't con him. Don't fool your friends. Don't fool Jesus. If you want to see the seasons of the soul roll in your life, come to know Jesus. Come and have a personal relationship with him. If you're here and you haven't, the pastoral team will love to speak to you later on. Make him the closest of all those companions going to build up this web of relationships you're going to build around you to establish your Christian life in a healthy way. Secondly, by regularly attending worship. By regularly attending worship, by not giving up going to worship. You know, there's a frightening, frightening statistic that half a million young people in Australia no longer go to church because they can't hack traditional churches. I know that figure from Australia. I, I dread not to think what it is in this country. As the alternative worship movement grows, as fresh expressions emerge and so on, we find more and more people who cannot hack traditional church anymore, and so they opt out. They're Christians, but they're not going to church. They are the proverbial coal that is trying to sit on the hearth rather than being part of the blaze. And yeah, I think it can work, but I don't think it's actually God's ideal. God wants us to be part of a Christian community, part of, part of a living, vibrant community that can feed us and we can feed in turn, so that we can share our heart with them and say look i don 't like the way you do worship. it doesn 't do anything for me it doesn 't do anything for my group of friends, church leaders. Will you hear those people? Will you hear those people are saying that and say to them, "Well, what can we do? Can we start a new meeting?" a new way of being church on a Wednesday night or a Friday morning or a Sunday night at midnight or something. Something that will allow people to gather together as a fellowship, a live living fellowship where they can be fed and watered and where they can grow. Attend worship. Be there. Be a healthy part of it. Be baptized. Wow, a Methodist saying that. Be part of that worshiping community. Witness to the hope that's within you. Spur each other on to good deeds. Encourage one another. These, of course, are not points that are coming from me. That's why the baptism thing is there as a Methodist. Of course I wouldn't tell you to be baptized, you know. The Baptist getting on the way, do we? All of those points are in Hebrews chapter 10. The chapter on perseverance, the chapter that leads up to, after the stories of faith, up to Hebrews 12.2. Are you willing to persevere in your walk with God as the word of God tells you to? Part of all that, part of what Hebrews is trying to do, is trying to get us into the Jesus habit. The way of habitualizing our lives so that being a Christian isn't something we're striving to do, it's something that becomes second nature to us. So that when everything else goes wrong, Jesus continues. So the seasons can roll because it's kind of not quite an automatic pilot, but just that it just works. What habits do you have? What rituals do you have in your life that actually ensure that your Christian life will grow and develop? This morning in the study notes, of course, we we're looking at the, the putting on the armor of, of, of God uh, from Ephesians chapter 6. I talked to Graham McFarlane, who's done a fantastic job, hasn't he? Anybody been in Radio 4 zone? Have you enjoyed it? Good, good, good. Uh, Radio 4, so they're very, very you know, sedate, aren't you? Very British. Um, the the ready for guys. Graham McFarland this morning said that he asked that zone this morning how many of you put on the spiritual armour every day. There were 250 people there. Guess how many people put up their hands. Three. Look round at those who put their hands up and say they're ready for, and tut at them. If you do, do you? Do we think the spiritual armor is actually supposed to be a Sunday school class thing? You know, it's a a children's club activity, isn't it? How many of you actually sit there every morning when you get out of bed and say, Lord, I place upon myself the breastplate of righteousness. Lord, I place upon myself the helmet of salvation. Lord, before I can even get out of this bed today, I place upon myself the shoes of salvation, the shoes of the gospel. How many of you do that? How many of you do the Jesus prayer or something like that where you say, Lord, uh, I've forgotten the Jesus prayer now. It's gone out of my mind. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Oh, we say all these things are ritual. We don't do that was spring harvest. What is it in your life that will continue when everything else falls away? What have you got there? A friend of mine, uh, Rob, Rob Wilson, died uh, about 18 months ago of, uh, of cancer. He was a good friend, and I didn't see enough of him. And uh, it grieves me. Uh, It grieves me even to talk about him dying again. But Rob, all the way through his final days, held on to a cross. All through his cancer. He had throat cancer. He was a Methodist minister. He was a preacher. He was a fantastic evangelist. And when he lost his voice, he clung to the cross. He held on to this small piece of wood, or one like it, so that he would not lose the sense of what it was all about when the horror of the end came. What have you got there? Platitudes, that everything will be okay because I'm holy enough. Are the rituals, are the practices there? Are the triggers there that will enable you in your life to actually move on with the Lord when time comes? In other traditions, those triggers might be the use of icons. They might be rosaries. They might be pictures of Jesus, crucifixes or crosses. And perhaps in the evangelical tradition we say, Whoa, we're not going there, Pete. You know, this is just dodgy stuff. Yes, they can become focuses of worship. And yet they started out as reminders of the living God. Doesn't that picture say something to you? Do you want to worship that picture? I don't want to worship that picture. But that picture reminds me of a relationship that I need to have with God an icon that can, I can bounce my ideas off and that can go up to heaven, that can remind me of my Jesus. What are your triggers? What's going to allow you to know that you're in a relationship with God? Coming to the end. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Sometimes the most important thing to do when you're in that kind of a situation is to decide that you are not going to be a passive victim anymore. That you're going to actually do something about it. That you're going to do some form of action. That's exactly what the psalmist decides. Why so don't my soul? Put your hope in God. For I will yet worship my God. Do you know that old song? Set your faces like flint and walk into the light. Do you know that one? Do you know it, Tim? Don't play it, please. But I always wonder, what does set your faces like flint" mean? Have you ever tried to set your face like a flint? Have you? Anybody? Steve, have you ever tried to do that? No? Sorry? You look like Flint anyway. <laughs> Does he? Anyway, but, but you know what it means? It means actually making a harsh decision to go through with something absolutely regardless. Regardless of what it means. To do it as a matter of will. We are too prone to following our hearts and our emotions. Christianity is actually, part, part of Christianity is about fixing your will to worship God. Fixing your will to fix your eyes upon Jesus. Notice of this, of course, it is not, it is not an offer. It's not a suggestion. When you're next available, could you possibly make an appointment with Jesus to fix your eyes upon him? When you're next in the mood, could you please fix your eyes on Jesus? When you're next at Spring Harvest in April 2007, fix your eyes on Jesus. In between, we don't mind what you do. It's not that at all. It is an absolute straight command. You Christian, you fix your eyes upon Jesus. I couldn't care less how you feel. I couldn't care less what your emotions are doing. I couldn't care less whether you like church or not. I couldn't care less. Whatever. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Straightforward biblical command. We're evangelicals. We believe quite hard, strongly, don't we? That we will do what God tells us to do. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Will you obey the command tonight? Not my command, God's command, God's word. Will you do what God's word has said to you tonight? Will you rise up when Tim comes back on the stage? Will you worship him? Will you praise God? Not because you're feeling like the bee's knees tonight but perhaps because you're not. Perhaps because you gave your life to Jesus ages ago and it's been hell ever since. Because you don't get that buzz where everyone else is dancing around and buzzing around and everything. You think, why are they doing this? Ah, it's absolutely ridiculous. I ask you tonight to obey God and to praise Him. And if you can't, well... If you've come with somebody you know, even more scary if you haven't, it might be scary for them, <laughs> why not ask the person next to you to help you, <clears throat> to hold your hand, to raise you up, to stand with you as you make a statement that you will praise God because that's what the commandment says to you. And, and praise God, whether you're in a season of desolation, or in a season of joy, or a season of power, a season of whatever. Praise God. Because he is the sovereign God. You're not praising God because of how you feel. You're praising God because of who he is. Almighty, victorious, creator, universal, savior, sovereign God. Tim, will you come on the stage? Can I say a prayer with you? Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Lord God, tonight, take us wherever we are. Take us to a place of worship. Father, whatever season we're going through, whatever's on our minds, whatever's tearing us apart, whatever's holding us together, Lord, help us to set our wills to praise you, to offer you the worship that we are, you are due To offer you the worship that you command of us as Christians. And Father set around us. The people who will support us. And nurture us. And guide us and lead us. The people who encourage us. To put our hope in you. To fix our eyes upon Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.